Welcome to Mansplaining, a podcast about the interesting things you can discover if you just take the time to learn. My name's Mark, and I'm going to be your host this week. And as always, I'm joined by Joe, an old friend from college. Together, we'll explore what's on our minds and hopefully figure out a thing or two about a thing or two. Joe, Chicago's on my mind. I interviewed for a job at the University of Chicago last week. Oh, really? And also this week's question stems from a remark that was made by a University of Chicago professor a long time ago when I was sitting in the class. So I've been thinking a lot about Hyde Park. Does your mind ever go back to those days? Yes. Yes, it does. Um, Especially since my daughter is now a just about to start her senior year of high school and is looking at colleges. And uh, I don't think she actually wants to go that far as to Chicago, but I can't help but think of what, yeah. whether she'd have a leg up as a potential legacy beneficiary, you know, so it's on my mind in that respect right now. Sure. Is the UFC something you would want to subject your daughter to? Because <laughs> I definitely have question. a mixture of good and bad memories about the place. Yeah. You know, she's a life of the mind type of gal, and I think she would benefit from a place like that. So I think it would be okay if she's interested in applying, and she might not be. Okay. Well, my fingers are crossed for her. So on to this week's question. Like I said, it goes back to a class I took in college, and it was one of those classes where you read great works of Western literature and translation, and we were reading the Iliad. And there's a section in the Iliad where the hero Achilles is very upset because he had, uh, the term is wife, but wife didn't mean the same thing back then as it does now, but uh, he was the primary woman in his life. And Agamemnon had just taken that woman for himself as kind of a show of force. And uh, Achilles is very upset, so to a friend of his, are the sons of Atreus the only men who love their wives? And that sticks out to me because at the time, the professor urged us to to use some caution because she said that the idea that we have of love, romantic love, was an invention of the Middle Ages in Europe. And so, therefore, Achilles, you know, roughly 1500 BC, could not have had the same idea about love as we have. So when we hear him say love, it's not what we're thinking. And ever since then, I've been kind of wondering about that. Like, to what extent can we really say that our idea of romantic love was just a invention of a certain period of time when artists and singers were talking about these things within a certain cultural context? Right. And in fact, would that imply that there are cultures in the world that have no notion of love at all? That is just uh, this simple universal that we take for granted in pop music and popular culture, but it's actually a, a very narrow historical and cultural thing. So I put the question to you in the words of Cole Porter, what is this thing called love? And is there any reason that we can believe that Achilles outside the walls of Troy did in fact love his wife? Yeah, so um, I did run down this question, and I am going to attempt to answer, you know, relate it back to all the different parts of your question. But I want to start like this. I love the Beatles. Mm -hmm. I love the Yankees. Yes. I love good thin crust pizza. (laughs) I truly love these things. I also love my wife. Mm -hmm. Many of us have heard this line, usually precipitating a breakup. I love you, 
but I'm not in love with you. Oh, yeah. Have you heard that one before? I've heard that one multiple times in my romantic life. <laughs> I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry. Yeah. I, I've not heard that exact phrase, but I can understand how agonizing it would be to hear. Yeah. I love you, but I'm not in love with you. What does that mean exactly? Do they love me the same way I love thin crust pizza? <laughs> and what's that distinction they're making about being in love? The obvious answer is that there are different types of love. The love you're referring to in your question mark is romantic love, and that's not the same as the love I have for the Beatles. Mm -hmm. So let me start, as I often do, with some definitions. According to my trusty Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, the word love has existed since before the 12th century. The noun love has nine separate definitions, and some of them very far afield from today's topic. For instance, here's a syllogism based on a couple of those definitions. God is love. Love is copulation. Therefore, God is copulation. You like that, Mark? Well, I do like that, and there are some cultures that would agree quite explicitly with that statement, but please go on. Yes. I feel like it gives new meaning to the expression, come to Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that image, show. Yeah. <laughs> so suffice to say, there are other definitions of love that are more relevant to our conversation today. My dictionary describes love as warm attachment, enthusiasm, or devotion, which adequately describes my feelings about the Yankees. It's also defined as affection based on admiration, benevolence, or common interests, and attraction based on sexual desire. The anthropologist Charles Lindholm defined it as, quote, any intense attraction that involves the idealization of the other within an erotic context with expectation of enduring some time into the future, end quote. I've seen it defined as a disposition toward another person that involves concern for the other person's welfare and feelings. It involves cultivating toward the object of one's attraction, quote, a spirit of self-sacrifice coupled with an attitude of appreciation or contemplation, end quote. I think these last few definitions come closer to what you're asking about, Mark. Yeah, in my personal life, I've always thought that the litmus test of true love is whether or not you want that person to be happy, even if that means that they're with someone else. Like, if you can honestly say yes to that, then you're truly in love and not just hoping that yeah. that person will make you happy. Yeah, I'm not sure I've ever <laughs> been big enough person to feel that way, <laughs> but I agree with you that that would be a, a true sign of love. I think it's also helpful to for us to distinguish romantic love or the phenomenon of being in love from what it is not. Friendships and love affairs can be mapped on a continuum of intensity. To like someone is to have positive thoughts or feelings about them, or to find their company rewarding. We often feel warm about and close to the people we like. Sometimes we choose to be emotionally intimate with those people. 
When we love somebody, we experience many of the same things as when we like them, but with more intensity and a profound feeling of care and commitment toward that person. Longtime friends often love each other. Being in love is basically all of the above plus feelings of attraction and sexual arousal. The Wikipedia article on romantic love, citing the Collins Dictionary, defines it as, quote, an intensity and idealization of a love relationship in which the other is imbued with extraordinary virtue, beauty, etc., so that the relationship overrides all other considerations, including material ones, end quote. Though romantic love is usually associated with sexual attraction, such feelings can also exist via courtship behaviors that originate in, quote, the medieval idea of chivalry as set out in the literature of chivalric romance, end quote. Right. So we're talking basically the most common example of this would be King Arthur, Guinevere, and Sir Lancelot. Yes, exactly. So, might the tales of King Arthur's court be the advent of romantic love as we understand it today? The answer is, it's possible. The word romance itself comes from the French vernacular and initially indicated a verse narrative. European medieval epic poems and ballads generally dealt with chivalric adventures. In the Middle Ages, knights errant entered into highly elaborate, mostly platonic, non-marital relationships with the women of high social standing whom they served. The connection between a knight and his lady may have been psychologically complicated, but was seldom physical. Knights were trained by the honor code of chivalry to serve their lieges with honor and virtue and with a purity of mind and heart. These ritualized interactions were complex and steeped in a tradition derived from theories of etiquette governed by the chivalric code of conduct. Marriage, which we think of today as a key marker of a loving relationship, was in those days a more formal arrangement. We know that the earliest recorded marriages in foundational Western civilizations like Mesopotamia, Greece, Rome, and among Hebrews were meant to do two things. Number one, secure alliances, and number two, produce offspring. By contrast, courtly love permitted expressions of caring and emotional intimacy that may have been lacking from the conjugal relationship at that time. Over time, the chivalric template for intimate relationships permeated Western sensibilities. As the Wikipedia article put it, and I quote again, the concept of chivalry and the notion of the courtly gentleman became synonymous with the ideal of how love and romance should exist between the sexes. Through the timeless popularization in art and literature of tales of knights and princesses, kings and queens, a formative and long-standing subconsciousness helped to shape relationships between men and women, end quote. I think this is what your professor in college was getting at. Mm-hmm. 
The British sociologist Anthony Giddens, in his 2013 book, The Transformation of Intimacy, Sexuality, Love, and Eroticism in Modern Society, wrote that the modern notion of romantic love coincided with the rise of the novel in the 17th and 18th centuries. Don Quixote, published in 1605, and ironically about a lowly Spaniard who attempted to bring outdated chivalric ideas into an unforgiving modern world, is widely considered the first modern novel. Novels introduce the concept of an individual's life having a narrative and telling a story, which is another root meaning of the word romance. Giddens believes romantic love slowly became associated with freedom and self-realization. Okay. If I can just pause back there you know, to pull out to make sure I'm getting all of this. So we're talking about a historical period when marriage was basically a political alliance, at least within the upper classes for whom and about whom uh, literary sources were dedicated. Yes. And so the notion of love grew up within the sort of poetic ideal of something that would be between two people who were not married, but they were devoted to each other. Correct. So if we think of it in terms, if we think about King Arthur, uh, Lancelot, and Guinevere, The problem in the original telling of that story was not that Guinevere and Lancelot were in love with each other. The problem was that they acted on that love. Like that love became sexual, and that was the downfall that pretty much doomed the entire relationship. Right. And so, this notion that we have of romantic love as being this all consuming uh, devotion to another person grew up uh, sort of in the context of where that was kind of a tragic thing felt between two people who couldn't be together, but they could not deny what they felt for each other. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I would say that's accurate. And I, what I'm willing to claim right now is that the popularization of romantic love came from that, those Arthurian stories. I'm not yet making a claim on whether romantic love existed before then or not. Yeah. It was popularized in the Middle Ages. Gotcha. Okay. So let's pivot now from Europe and the West. I wondered, and I'm sure you do too, what about the rest of the world? Yeah. The evidence for romantic love existing across cultures is mixed. The 19th century American anthropologist Lewis H. Morgan, studying Native American populations, wrote that, quote, the offspring of civilization and super-added refinement of love was unknown among the barbarians, end quote. <laughs> yeah. The 20th century's preeminent American cultural anthropologist Margaret Mead, who studied indigenous populations in Southeast Asia, wrote in 1928 that, quote, romantic love as it occurs in our civilization, inextricably bound up with ideas of monogamy, exclusiveness, jealousy, and undeviating fidelity, does not occur in Samoa, end quote. Around the same time as Mead, the Polish anthropologist Bronislaw Malinowski, in his book about the Trobriand Islanders of Melanesia off the coast of New Guinea, wrote, I quote again, Though the social code does not favor romance, romantic elements and imaginative personal attachments are not altogether absent in Trobriand courtship and marriage, end quote. Okay. 
The work of French anthropologist Claude Lévy-Strauss showed that there were complex forms of courtship spanning both ancient and contemporary primitive societies. In primitive societies, marriages were often arranged, but the wishes of the betrothed and the affection they felt for each other was considered. Even so, the evidence is unclear as to whether, quote, members of such societies formed loving relationships distinct from their established customs in a way that would parallel modern romance, end quote. So that's kind of a mixed, muddied picture from anthropology. And these anthropological studies suggest a gulf between the European concept of romantic love and that of many non-European cultures. An interesting case that underscores the gulf concerns the aboriginal inhabitants of Mangaya, an island in Polynesia. Now, these people converted to Christianity and mastered the English language. So, there was some conversation with them about what love, the word love meant. They used the term love solely in the context of sexual desire, and they were puzzled by how the European concept of love also included affection and companionship. Researchers concluded that in Mangaya, there was, quote, no cultural connection between a willingness to copulate with a person and any feeling of affection or liking or admiration between copulating partners, end quote. So there's got to be a linguistic element to that, right? Because it seems to be what they're describing is in the language that these peoples were using. They had a word that would correspond to our notion of lust, but apparently lacked a word that would be properly translated to love? Yeah, I don't know that for sure, but what I just uncovered does strongly suggest that. Yeah, Yeah. they didn't have a word for it. Okay, that's interesting. It kind of raises that philosophical question, which maybe will be a subject of a future episode. If your language lacks a word for the color red, can you see the color red? Yeah. Or does the color exist separate and distinct from your linguistic categories? Right. So stay with me, because I think I'm going to touch on this at least glancingly when I get to my own opinion and some of the science here. Yeah. So there are other scientists, in fairness, that dispute that this gulf exists between romantic love in Europe and outside of Europe. A 1992 study by two American ethnologists called A Cross-Cultural Perspective on Romantic Love starts by acknowledging that, quote, the anthropological study of romantic or passionate love is virtually non-existent due to the widespread belief that romantic love is unique to Euro-American culture, end quote. And yet, the authors found that some form of romantic love existed in 147 of the 166 cultures they surveyed. We should keep in mind that just because some courtship rituals don't include romantic love doesn't mean it's absent from that human experience. For example, we know that some people in arranged marriages fall in love. Yeah, to this day in India, uh, a number of marriages are arranged, and yet many of those turn out to be loving. It also occurs to me that one crucial factor for anthropologists looking for romantic love is how they define romantic love. Because I remember uh, from what you quoted from Margaret Mead, she was thinking of monogamy as a crucial element of romantic love, 
when in fact that seems like maybe that's questionable. Like, why does romantic love need to be monogamous? Right. You also mentioned jealousy. Why does that need to be involved in it? Yeah. So if you come in with a very specific idea of this is what love is, and if it doesn't have all these things in it, then it's not love, then you're going to have trouble finding it in other cultures. But if you have a broader understanding of it, then you might find it all over the place. Right. And speaking of broader understandings of love, now I want to move to what psychology has to say about love. So last year, the psychologists Adam Bodie and Jeff Kushnick published a paper in the journal Frontiers in Psychology, in which they proposed a biological definition of romantic love based on their consideration of its evolutionary history, function, and mechanisms. Here's their definition. Quote, Romantic love is a motivational state typically associated with a desire for long-term mating with a particular individual. It occurs across the lifespan and is associated with distinctive cognitive, emotional, behavioral, social, genetic, neural, and endocrine activity in both sexes. Throughout much of the life course, it serves mate choice, courtship, sex, and pair bonding functions. It is a suite of adaptations and byproducts that arose sometime during the recent evolutionary history of humans. End quote. Since we measure evolutionary history in millions of years, that definition strongly implies that romantic love predates the chivalric era and even Western civilization. Yeah. Contemporary researchers have employed modern science to study this subject. Anthropologist Helen Fisher, in her 2004 book, Why We Love, marshals evidence from brain scans to show that love is a chemical reaction in the brain in which norepinephrine and dopamine, responsible for excitement and euphoria in humans, are present in higher-than-usual quantities. Fisher used MRIs to study the brain of a person in love and concluded that love was a natural drive as powerful as hunger. The psychologist Marty Hazelton explored the evolutionary underpinnings of romantic love and concluded that when parents are in committed, long-lasting relationships, they help to ensure that their children are properly fed and cared for so they can live to reproductive age. In other words, love evolved to keep parents together long enough for their children to reach sexual maturity. <laughs> you gotta love evolutionary biology. Yeah. I mean, they take they take something as as uh, tear inducing as love and reduce it to just uh, a strategy for maintaining the the survival of the gene. Yes, but nonetheless, they claim it's a real thing. So I thought you'd appreciate right. that. And listen, I'm just scratching the surface here. There's abundant evidence for this proposition in the scientific literature. I think the takeaway is that there's a genetic evolutionary basis for romantic love that almost surely predates the Middle Ages. Yeah. All right. I want to tell you about a couple of interesting rabbit holes I fell into while researching this topic. When I say the words love triangle, knowing you the way I do, Mark, you're probably thinking about a threesome involving yourself, Kim Kardashian, and Paris Hilton. Am I right? 
Uh, you're right on two of those three accounts. <laughs> but I won't tell you which one you got wrong. Okay, that'll remain a secret. So get your head out of the goddamn gutter, Mark, because there's a different kind of love triangle, and it's called the triangular theory of love. Developed by the psychologist Robert Sternberg, its three components are passion, intimacy, and commitment. Sternberg defines passion as, quote, the drives that lead to romance, physical attraction, sexual consummation, and related phenomena in loving relationships. Intimacy involves, quote, feelings of closeness, connectedness, and bondedness in loving relationships, end quote. Commitment differs according to time. In the short term, it refers to the decision one makes to love another. And in the long term, it's about the commitment necessary to maintain that love. Sternberg writes that, quote, the amount of love one experiences depends on the absolute strength of these three components. And the type of love one experiences depends on their strengths relative to each other, end quote. Combinations of the three elements explain the different stages and types of love, and it's natural for the relative strength of each component to change over time as romantic relationships develop and mature. Relationships founded on one element are less likely to survive than those based on two or three elements. It's all visually represented in a triangle that I'll post to our Facebook page. The three components are labeled on the vertices, and the seven types of love appear in their appropriate places at or in between the vertices. I mention this because I found this triangle to be surprisingly coherent. The various combinations summarize a lot of the romantic relationships and even some friendships I've had in my life. For example, the combination of intimacy and passion is described as romantic love, while the combination of intimacy and commitment is described as companionate love, which is not as intense as romantic love because it doesn't include passion, but nonetheless involves deep, often long-standing attachment to the partner. could be lifelong attachment. Mm -hmm. Sternberg believes that loving relationships change in predictable ways, such that all couples in love experience passionate, intimate, and committed love in the same patterns. That last point alone deserves its own podcast. But for now, I encourage our listeners not to take my word for it and instead to check out the triangle on our Facebook page and see if they can map their own relationships onto it. The other rabbit hole is that I learned a new word in my research for this episode. Limerence. L-I-M-E-R-E-N-C-E. It's the state of mind that results from romantic feelings for another person. It was coined in 1979 by the psychologist Dorothy Tenoff and is a close cousin to adoration or infatuation. Wikipedia describes it as, quote, an involuntary state of intense desire, end quote. An involuntary state. It typically includes fantasies, obsessive or intrusive thoughts, the wish to start or maintain a relationship with the love object, and the desire to have one's feelings reciprocated. 
Tenov adds that, quote, sexual attraction is an essential component of limerence, end quote. Now, I don't know about you, Mark, but I've been guilty of limerence in my life. Though, to this day, Raquel Welch doesn't have the slightest idea I felt that way about her. <laughs> so, 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 what you're telling me is that Raquel was one of the three poles within your love triangle. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe that's all I should say on this subject if I want to preserve my marriage. But in all seriousness, the reason limerence is interesting to me, and I think relevant both to the triangular theory of love and to your question, is because of what happens after the involuntary state of intense desire fades. According to Tenov, there are two types of love, limerence, which she describes as loving attachment, and what she calls loving affection, which best describes the bond between individuals and their parents or children. One type can evolve into the other. I'm quoting Tenov again. Those whose limerence was replaced by affectional bonding with the same partner might say, we were very much in love when we married. Today, we love each other very much. End quote. So there it is again, Mark. I love you, but I'm not in love with you. Right. Ethologists, the folks who study animal behavior, draw a comparable distinction between what they call the pair-forming and pair-maintaining functions of sexual activity. And if I may ascend my soapbox for a moment, I want to say something about pop culture and love, because you mentioned pop music in your question. While falling in love used to be an intensely personal phenomenon, often negotiated in secret due to societal taboos about things like sexual promiscuity or homosexuality, nowadays there are numerous external factors that influence how love is perceived or characterized by individuals. Two of the biggest influences are social media and films, both of which deeply influence, and one can argue seriously distort, our expectations of what love should be. They, I would argue, they are the modern-day equivalent of the chivalric tales of olden days. Young people who lack life experience are susceptible to the many unrealistic ideas of love that they see on big and small screens. Hollywood films depicting love at first sight love conquering all, or the idealization of one's partner as an impossibly handsome or beautiful soulmate, are harmful because they warp the expectations of their target audience of teenagers and young adults, setting them up for severe disappointment in their real relationships with real people. Right. Add to that the widespread availability of pornography, which warps their idea of sex. As I've mentioned... Romantic love is a demonstrable and scientifically provable phenomenon, but pop culture is not the place to find that proof. Yeah, one thing I've noticed about romantic comedies is that they always break away abruptly, like the story ends once the couple gets together definitively. Yeah. Even something like when, when Harry Met Sally, which I think documents about 10 years of their relationship. Right. As soon as they become a couple, the movie is done. Yeah. And like you pointed out earlier, uh, 
love changes over time. So we never see a romantic comedy that charts the changes within their loving relationship. It's always that first bloom. And then once the flowers bloomed, we're done with the story. Yeah, that's a good point. Which sets up the expectation that that should last forever. And of course, nothing lasts forever. Everything changes, including love. Right. And the, and the moment you get together or the moment you get married is really like kind of the starting gate in many respects. So the film is ending at the starting gate, which is kind of weird. That's a really good point. Right. So that brings me finally to my answer to your question. My view is that your professor's argument was not meritless and has some grounding in cultural history, but it's ultimately myopic. While the concept of romantic love may not have become popular until the Middle Ages, the substance of romantic love, the limerence, those telltale behaviors, the hardwired chemical reaction in the brain, That's been around for eons and is more elemental to human experience than your professor suggested. It may have taken humankind forever to put a name to it and map it out physically and psychologically, but so what? Contagious diseases have existed as long as humans have walked the planet, but we didn't have a germ theory of disease to describe them until deep into the 19th century. Just because we lacked a proper understanding of diseases doesn't mean the definition we grafted onto them thousands of years later wasn't also true of our ancestors. Right. So too with love. And so too with Achilles, who lived in a culture that had at least two terms for love, Eros and Agape. Eros was more of the sexual love and Agape was more of the spiritual aspect of it. I don't remember which term was used by Homer in that particular section, but whichever it was, Uh, He thought it was important enough to include as part of Achilles' motivation at that moment in the story. And so I think we have to assume that he was feeling something then. And since we're all human beings in this room, why not assume that he was feeling some aspect of what we feel? Yeah. So with Achilles specifically, I feel like I understand why you mentioned the Iliad here. It's a foundational text that we had to read when we were in college. That we got to read. That we got to read when we were in college. Right, right. But I feel like the the question of whether Achilles loved his wife is complicated because um, first, she wasn't really his wife. Her name was, I looked this up ahead of this uh, podcast, her name was Briseis. And she was married to another guy before Achilles sacked her city and enslaved her shortly before the events that are memorialized in the book. And I also read that some scholars think that because Achilles didn't have a wife, he might have been gay. Yeah. Okay. That we're heading down definitely a a different pod different podcast topic on that one. Let me just say that the reading of Achilles is gay is almost entirely an anachronistic application of what was an Athenian norms a thousand years later backwards onto Greek culture and acceptance of those sorts of relationships was not universal in the ancient Greek world. So that is unlikely. Right. And really my conclusion and reason for snarkily mentioning that is just to say that who are we to say that Achilles wasn't in love with this woman, you know? Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm pointing at your professor here when I, when I say that <laughs> sentence. Yeah, you're entirely correct to say that this was not an entirely consensual relationship. Briseis was a possession. But Achilles also 
treated her with affection. And at the time, it would not have been unusual for women to be taken in that fashion. It was absolutely brutal. Right. And I'm sure it was a horrible situation for women who were taken in that fashion, but it, it was just part of the culture at the time. And he may have thought of her as his wife, despite the fact that, yes, she was previously with another man who he probably killed before he took her. Yes, and it's not at all unreasonable, illogical to think that, you know, passion, intimacy, and commitment, all three of them, came of that relationship. Mm -hmm. So, I agree with you. So, I gave you kind of a hedging answer, but that's what I think. I'm wondering what your reaction is. I think the hedging answer is the actual accurate one. I think it's probably... It's a very interesting topic. I do think, you know, call back to an earlier comment I made, it is kind of related to that question about, you know, can you see a color if you don't have a word for it in your language? That it's interesting the way terms like love, which we take as universals, also have a dictionary definition that is very specifically dependent on the linguistic history that we were raised in, and it shapes the way we think about things. Right. And it shapes the things that we can identify in our world because we have a word for it when we see it, and so we point at it and we say, that's that thing. But I also think that, you know, geese mate for life, and uh, humans have a propensity to do the same, and that there's probably also a biological basis to that, which means it's not entirely a function of culture. And so it's probably one of those things where it's not clearly one or the other. It's not biological. It's not cultural. It's a very complicated combination of both. Yeah. It just seems patently obvious to me that romantic love was an evolutionary adaptation in order to multiply the human species. Right. That was the clever trick that enabled it to happen. So Yeah. Yeah. One thing that makes humans distinct from I don't know, let's say insects, is that human infants take a very long time before they're able to take care of themselves. Yes. You can't take a newborn and set it in the jungle and say, Okay, Junior. Right. <laughs> See you later. Right. Like you need to be around there for six or seven yes. years. And yeah. In other words, that pair needs to be bonded for a, a long time until the right. little girl starts to menstruate and the little boy is old enough to hunt, you know, which is basically adolescence, teenage years. That's a long time for a pair to stay bonded. And these, are, this is the thing that makes it happen. Love. Yeah. So what is that thing called love? It's, it's our adaptation to the fact that kids grow up very slowly yeah. until they grow up very fast, which I'm sure you're experiencing right now. Yeah, that's with a, your daughter heading to college. That's as good an answer as any, Mark. So we're in agreement. You ready for my question for next time? I am ready. Lay it on me. Okay. My question is going to take us careening from the sublime to the ubiquitous, not the ridiculous, the ubiquitous. And by that, I mean guns. Ugh. Why can't we control guns in America? And please don't tell me it's because the NRA is all powerful, because I don't buy it. Gun sales spiked after 9-11. They spiked during the COVID pandemic. They spike after each and every mass shooting. They spike whenever Democrats get elected president. The NRA can't possibly be pulling all those strings. I think the answer to this question is a lot deeper than we acknowledge, 
and I'd like you to get to the bottom of it for me. What do you think? Okay. Okay, after I very sweetly ask you about love, you've sent me down the road of gun violence. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you for that. I'll take a deep dive into one of today's least enjoyable topics, and I'll come back to you with an answer. Yeah, it's not so much about gun violence as what explains the American obsession with guns. I suspect it's related to the American obsession with big cars, but we'll see what I find. Okay, good. Okay, so that's it for this week. If you have any comments, if you uh, if you want to talk about someone who broke your heart a long time ago, you can do that sort of thing on our Facebook page, which you find at Mansplaining the Podcast. If you want to show your love for this podcast, you can help us out. You can you can show us some love by going to your podcast platform of choice, be that um, Apple or Spotify or Amazon, and give us a rating or a review. That helps other people discover a podcast that they might love. And listen, notwithstanding what I mentioned earlier, folks, it's okay to say that you love us, but you're not in love with us. Right. Yeah. You are in your as, comments. You are at some point within the love triangle that does not include passion, and that that's okay. That is okay. Right. We love you too. Right. But that's it for this week. This has been Mark, and that has been Joe. And thank you for spending some time with us. Talk to you next time. That's it for this edition of Mansplaining. Mansplaining is brought to you by Joe and Mark and nobody else. Thank you for hanging out with us for a little bit, and we'll see you next time. 